Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. In this episode of Teams at Work, we chatted with Louis Bakai. He is a creator right now, but he actually is an engineer and a former engineering leader at companies like Jet, Walmart, Bank of America. He has a huge toolbox of insights and learnings that he shared with us. And more importantly, it was super inspiring to hear him speak about the decision he took to become an entrepreneur, a founder, and an educator and creator, instead of actually continuing to climb the corporate ladder in tech companies. It's a really interesting episode because Louis is a very inspiring human being and his learnings are so unique, but also because he's just so New York about everything, you know? So check it out, enjoy it, and I hope you can learn a lot. Hey, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Teams at Work. I am here today with my co-founder, Anthony, as always. Hey, everyone. And we have a very special guest today who I'm really, really excited to chat with. All things engineering, leadership, Elon's next moves at Twitter, of course. Welcome, Louis. We're so glad to have you. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's super, super cool to have you. We've met a few months ago, actually, where I was trying to learn from you how you pulled off this like really successful engineering career ladder climbing course on Gumroad. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but maybe to start and get you warmed up, tell us a little bit more about your path. I mean, you were an engineer and worked for so many different companies, JAD, Walmart, Bank of America, whatnot, and you were an engineering leader at the end, but then decided to become a creator. And now you're hosting a podcast and writing a newsletter and teach engineers how to climb that back tech career ladder. Tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to really take this like sudden turn, I would say, and become a really amazing and inspiring creator that we know you as today. Well, first of all, I appreciate you guys having me on and I appreciate you sharing those those kind words. So yeah, I, I had a, I'd say maybe over a decade career in tech, I started as an engineer. I worked for some small startups at first, and then I worked at the big banks, first a company that made software for big banks. And then finally, you know, I realized at the big banks that I'd rather be working at startups again. And I joined, a, got very lucky, I joined a startup called Jet, which was kind of like a rocket ship. And as an individual contributor, senior engineer at first, but the company grew. I was sort of first 20 employees in. And, um, you know, the company grew really fast and my career grew really fast along with that. I I hired multiple engineering teams. Basically, within the first six months, I sort of had my first team. <laughs> and then it was learning on the on the fast lane, if you will. And then, you know, Jed got acquired by Walmart. And at Walmart, my teams and I sort of moved out of e-commerce into 
pharmacy, which is similar. I mean, he's still selling things, but there's a lot of laws and regulations and things like that. And then the pandemic hit and we built a lot of great stuff for Walmart, actually a lot of innovative stuff, I'd say, when it comes to pharmacy, partly because our teams were still very much in startup mode and it felt like an amazing opportunity to help people. We built, um, pick up pills from, from the parking lot. You know, the app would automatically ping the store, tell people that you're there. Someone would walk it out. Walmart has an elderly demographic. This was something they never did before, walk pills out to a parking lot. Also deliver pills, which is not easy. There's obviously laws and regulations. Walmart had never shipped pills before. And so, yeah, it was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, shortly after the pandemic and after we sort of stabilized, I started seeing the bureaucracy and I started realizing like, you know, we were moving really fast during the pandemic, but then, you know, compliance came in and all these other teams and saying, slow down, what are you guys doing? And I decided, you know what? I mean, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. You know, this pandemic thing hit. What am I sort of doing with my life? You know, is this the, am I going to be a middle manager forever? Which is not a bad gig. They pay really, really well. Around September 21, I sort of decided to pivot my career and sort of chase my dreams that I've always had of being an entrepreneur. And yes, yeah, so the rest is history. But then once I sort of became an entrepreneur, I started to realize like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know how to sell. I'm an awkward engineer. I manage people. And managing people is actually not too difficult. Most of it is, you know, one-on-one. And I'm actually really good one-on-one. It's just with strangers that I tend to get, you know, a little bit nervous, like most engineers. And so, you know, I had to learn how to sell. I had to learn marketing. I had to learn all these various things that that I knew very, very little about because it was all sort of taken care of me, taken care for me by individuals within the organizations that I was a part of. And so I started like digging in and figuring out how this entrepreneurial game works, learning about audience building, learning about I'm building various tools. And I figured if I can first make a few dollars on my own, then I might be able to make more dollars and hire people and figure it all out. But that's sort of where I'm at right now. It's been just a year since I took this plunge. Super, super exciting. And I mean, you mentioned that your dream was always to become an entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what did you associate with it? Like what were your fantasies around it? And did it come true to a degree at least? Or what were kind of the learnings so far? So not to go off on a tangent, like I usually, and most engineers do, but I was born poor in communist Albania. I, I was brought over to the US at 10. And when we sort of grew up in poverty. And so entrepreneurship always seemed like what capitalism is about, but it was always so risky and so far away because we were poor, right? So landing these good jobs, especially for me, engineering, leadership in engineering, paying, you know, but by the time I quit Walmart, I was basically being paid you know, close to a million dollars in total compensation. And to walk away from that when you were making like 20 grand, 12 years earlier or whatever it is, 20 grand a year, it was an insane thing, right? Like all my family members were like, what the hell are you doing? But you know, I had, I felt like I had the safety net and I could take the risk, right? So I sort of set myself up for that. But you know, in terms of the dream, I mean, I saw people, right? Like Mark Lohr, who I definitely consider like an indirect mentor. I mean, he was sort of a millionaire when he started Jet. He had already succeeded with two other startups and he had built a nice little cushion. But when he started Jet, I saw him go from millionaire to billionaire right in front of my eyes. And I started realizing, you know what? Like this is, <laughs> in capitalism, this is the game to be playing. And you're not going to make billions. You could be a hundred years at Walmart, Louis, and you won't even, you know, maybe you'll make a hundred million, but you don't have a hundred years left in your life. And so, and it wasn't just a money thing. I mean, it's also... I mean, it's definitely not the money thing because I was making good money, but it's more like the freedom, right? Being able to help people in my circle. I still felt like I was making all this money, but I can't really lift anybody up around me. I need to make more money. <laughs> and so, you know, it's those sorts of motivations, I think. And yeah, I mean, I think the freedom is the biggest thing by far, you know, but um, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. 
So tell us what this freedom has given you, Louis. What are you working on now? What are you building? So, I mean, look, I'm actually working harder now than I did before, you know, in a lot of ways. I've sort of taken this small bets approach to entrepreneurship. And the idea is that I'm going to try a few things, right? And I'm going to see what works and sort of double down on that. So we built something with my brother and a couple of other guys around household management. So, you know, sort of wealthy households have this problem where they have all sorts of employees going there. It's not easy to manage them. They're sort of like a small business, not easy to manage them. So we built software for them to pay these employees to give them tasks, do all this stuff. And so that's one small bet. You know, that was sort of the first thing we did. And I quickly realized like SaaS and this whole game is really slow. And I realized that I have to find different ways to make money. And, you know, I don't have multiple four or five year intervals that I could sink into something and then find out at the end of it that it doesn't work. And so I decided, look, I'm going to try other things simultaneously. And I started building an audience. I made a course. You know, I just sort of looked back. I learned from this guy, Daniel Vasallo on the internet quite a bit. Luckily, I had also taken this writing class called Write a Passage. Those two things helped me immensely. And I actually took the writing class before I quit Walmart, you know, sort of improved my writing for, I think writing is a great career enabler. I mean, you know, it's how you get ahead at the later levels. And so anyway, I took that course for that reason, but it turned out to be really useful in entrepreneurship. So I started writing a newsletter. You know, like I mentioned, I, for an awkward engineer, I'm very proud of it. Over 20,000 followers on Twitter and thousands in my newsletter and even a couple of thousand on LinkedIn, although I'm still a little nervous about posting on LinkedIn regularly. A lot of, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever, right? A lot of people have this and I have that. But anyway, so I took the small bets approach. I've been making money in various ways, basically, is what that means. I've got actually three SaaS, three SaaS out there right now that I built mostly, you know, by myself with my brother and a couple of them are very small, but they're still making money. And, you know, I've got these courses, one is on the engineering career advice, and one is sort of on, on newsletters. So as I was doing this, I said, you know what, let me document it. If anyone wants to also grow an audience or is thinking about, you know, how an awkward person might be able to do this, let me do that because it might be useful to somebody down the road. And that's where we're at. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's obviously super impressive. And I know you're in like, you know, year one building entrepreneurial phase, but I'd love to dig into, I guess, a little bit of what the topics you cover in the course and in your newsletter but I, I'd sure. love to dig into more of your past as a tech leader. I mean, what do you think tech leaders, all the tech leaders out there that are consuming your content, listening to this podcast, listening to you, what do you think tech leaders need to be capable of now more than ever? And as you went through your journey, did you have a set of principles that guided you that you're maybe now in sort of a, a mentorship role where you're passing those on to others? We're basically trying to dig into your path. What do you think is important for tech leaders today? That's a great question. And I think, you know, engineers, right, have these principles already. Like we operate with principles, like the solid principles is one example. It's one of the most popular ways to build systems that are amazing to use and, and also amazing to add features to and all these other things. So we operate with principles already. But as a leader, at first, I can't tell you that I went into it thinking I need to have a bunch of principles to do this right. But luckily for me, there was amazing leaders around me at Jet that I could learn from. And so... I very quickly realized I better have some core principles in terms of how I operate my teams or I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. And I did get into trouble once or twice. But basically, I sort of borrowed a lot of principles from my mentors at Jet. So principles like trust and fairness and transparency and these sorts of things, you know, were the way that I ran my teams. I mean, you know, even at Walmart and we got we actually like because transparency is one of our things, I would tell people exactly what was going on, even if. HR was like, you can't say that. <laughs> but that's just how I ran my teams. And if I got fired for it, then I got fired for it. I think, you know, you got to have sort of principles too that you stick by. And by the way, they're, they're very unlikely to fire you if you're doing a great job. And being transparent with your team is, you know, transparent is different than being 
truthful too, right? Which is like you could you could say the truth and not tell them everything. You omit parts. Transparency means you're telling them everything, the good and the bad. And people stuck, you know, that breeded a lot of trust and people stuck with me. You know, a lot of teams after the jet acquisition by Walmart, a lot of teams fell apart. You know, my team stuck around and they're still there even long after I'm gone. And to me, that's sort of a sign that we built something pretty good. And so I think when you think about engineering leadership today, if you were an engineer, you, you built your systems with principles. There's no reason why you shouldn't run your teams with principles. In fact, it's the best way to run your teams. And I'd say, you know, pick mentors that are principled. Pick mentors that, that are good at what they do and, you know, sort of not just paying lip service. And the world is changing fast, right? There's a lot of layoffs going on. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different things. So these things are becoming harder and harder, not easier. But I think that's why they're even more important today than, than before, because retention is important. Keeping great people around is important. Yeah. Anyway, so I hope that answers your question, Anthony. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. And so you've just brought it up, so we might as well dig into it. And I know Daria has some questions on this as well. There is a lot going on. It's a crazy time to be in, I think, just on the planet, but also in tech. You know, earlier this year, we definitely had a market correction. We've seen the, the kind of reverbial impact of that over the as the years unfolded. And we're now sort of entering the last phase of the year. How do you see all of this impacting the engineering ecosystem, the talent ecosystem? Obviously, just recently, we've had Facebook, we've had Twitter make, and a couple other organizations make massive decisions in which a lot of engineers were included or affected. But what are you seeing, Louis? How are you seeing all this play out? Yeah, so I actually sort of wrote a thread related to some of the stuff that's happening at Twitter, because I think that's it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine right now. And engineers love that expression because a lot of the a lot of the systems, when it comes to uptime, you want something to start singing when the sort of the coal mine's about to collapse so you can get out. <laughs> but basically, I think, you know, Twitter in a lot of ways is the canary in the coal mine for the industry. And I think there's a lot of changes going on. I mean, there's been no more deeper cuts than at Twitter. I think big tech in general is frankly in a lot of trouble. Obviously, it's easy to say that, right? And, you know, my guess is going to be as good as anyone's about the industry. But I do think big tech's in a lot of trouble, basically. And there's a few reasons. I mean, I think technology has evolved a lot spinning up systems like the ones that big tech has are they're still not i don't want to make it sound trivial right like you still need to pay big bucks for a distributed systems engineer or these specialized skills you still need to pay big bucks but those skills are there you could hire them even as a startup and so that's the first massive change when these companies spun up you couldn't hire a distributed you know that no one had solved you know human scale problems before and so now there's systems that make it a lot easier to solve those again not easy but easier and so I think there's going to be a lot of competition for big tech. We're seeing that, you know, already sort of pop up with small little startups like Gas, a team of four. I think they're going to 30,000 people an hour, 30,000 users an hour. That's insane scale, right, for a startup with like a couple of people. But it's like it, it highlights the power of what's happening right now. And, you know, if it's, don't put your blinders on and think that they won't come for parts of Google next or parts of Facebook next. I mean, they will, right? Like TikTok came up pretty fast under Facebook sort of knows. And so the point is that I think big tech is in trouble. I think it's going to get fragmented. I think in terms of engineers, you know, engineers are going to continue to be really valuable. There was already a massive shortage. Like I remember at Walmart, it was really difficult to hire great people, really, really difficult because they had these great options. They could go to Netflix and look at Netflix, right? I mean, Gergay, who runs the Pragmatic Engineer, says that HBO and Disney built their streaming services in a fraction of the time that it took Netflix. Obviously, they had the benefit of hindsight and they could hire a bunch of people from Netflix to sort of do that and figure these very hard problems out. It costs money to hire those people, but these problems are a lot more solvable. And so as big tech loses its business, 
to a lot of various startups and a lot of competition, I think engineering will become a lot more fragmented, but it will continue to be very, very valuable. I mean, I think salaries will, will still remain high. I mean, just around July, August, I saw this data that basically there was a shortage of 500,000 500, or so entry-level developers. Now, most of those jobs were at like startups, mid-tier firms that don't really want to pay big tech salaries, right? Like they want to pay 80 to 120 grand for an entry-level engineer, which is even less, 70 to 120 which is laughable right now, you know, when you compare it to big tech, but there was a shortage of 500,000 people. And that's the key, I think. And that's just entry level. And so the point is, I think engineers will continue to be in demand. Salaries may take a little bit of a hit if big tech sort of gets, gets broken up in terms of competition. It's really hard to hold their moat. Their moat was technology. I mean, think about Google, right? Like what is their moat? Their moat is really good search. Good search is really well known. I mean, I'm, I'm trivializing it a little bit, but it's not just search. I mean, they need to crawl the whole internet. Okay. But people can crawl the internet right now. You know, there's a lot of things people can do that it was just impossible to do in 99 or even 2010. So I'm just saying, I think as it splinters, there will be more and more roles in these domain heavy industries, whether it's pharmacies, whether it's big banks, you know, things that take domain complexity and software to do really well. And those firms are going to start doing much better, you know, because once they have technology that they've been starving for, and again, think about Walmart, right? Pharmacy becoming more efficient is wonderful for a lot of people. We were able to ship pills to people's stores and all these other things that they never did before, sorry, to people's homes from the stores, which is something we never did before. And so, you know, it went from, I think it was a few orders when the pandemic started, the calls came in and it was tens of thousands of orders within like a month or two because we were able to build the tech fast and scale it. So I think there's going to be more and more of that, you know, across the entire industry. This is super, super interesting because I think looking at this as a potential, as talent, so to say, right? Like as an engineer or as a person in tech that potentially has been laid off or is trying to look for a new role, this bears a lot of hope, obviously. So this is a super interesting perspective. Also that actually we will see like kind of reawakening of these like older industries now that tech talent is more freely available and can actually go on and like join potentially also what we call, I don't know, like free digital industries or whatever, like what is your advice for everyone out there that is currently either searching for a job or potentially looking around? How can our audience prepare themselves, so to say, for this like transition from big tech into actually more traditional industries to kind of like come on board and modernize or bring technology to life in more kind of domain-driven industries? What would be the skills that you would think we need to look out for or like build up? So, Okay. I mean, I think that's a great question. And I actually had a conversation with somebody that was laid off just this week. You know, right now is probably the worst time to be looking <laughs> because most of the hiring for a lot of these companies starts in January, right? And a lot of the people that were just laid off at Twitter, I mean, of course they have severances, so hopefully they'll be okay. But the point is that right now is like the worst possible time to be looking. But I think January onward, we'll see more of a, a transition for a lot of these people that were just sort of laid off from, from these companies. And with that being said, I think right now is a really bad time to be optimizing for money. Like if your goal is to, you know, there's a lot of ways that engineers can navigate this. One way is reduce lifestyle creep, right? Just take a lower pay. I know this is going to sound crazy at a less demanding mid-tier firm, bank, whatever. And that's willing to negotiate with you so you could be remote and you could live somewhere and save a bunch of money. Right. So that's one way. Right. But I basically think there's going to have to be compromises like that because a lot of these firms are just unable to they don't have the margins of big tech. So they can't. But Walmart has razor thin margins. I mean, for to compete with with big tech talent is difficult. Right. And so and they tried. I mean, they pay really well. But the point is that 
for a lot of these firms is really challenging. So if you're optimizing for that, you're going to struggle. But if you're willing to take sort of a step back, and what I told my friend was, look, you've wanted to become a manager and you have only individual contributor skill sets, go in and say, look, I know, you know, he has some offers already, but obviously coming from big tech, it's a really good name on the resume. Use that and say, look, I've always wanted to become a manager. Truthfully, I don't know that much about management, but I would be willing to compromise with you. I'll do both jobs for a little bit. I'll come in and do 80% individual contributor and 20 to 40%. I just need you to promise that you're going to hire, you know, two to three people for me within the next few months or whatever it is and make that compromise. Get that in writing that you'll, they'll give you a path for you to go. And so that's, these are the kinds of negotiations that I think you're going to have to get creative now if you're coming from that pedigree to go down and you could still have a wonderful job and you could still make really, really good money. And at the same time, and build up all these other skills. Exactly. Yeah, right. Maybe let's toggle into that actually a little bit. Like, what do you think are the key skills or like character traits or, you know, things that people need to develop in order to succeed in those like tech leadership roles? Maybe specifically given the fact that they're moving into maybe slightly more old fashioned or traditional industries. What do you think is important? The thing is, the people skills are really strong in a lot of these older industries, actually, probably even stronger than big tech. You know, you know I saw it at Walmart, right? Like they were very nice people. Their communication skills were excellent. And I mean, I could tell you the training programs that Walmart had were some of the best in terms of training ICs to go into management. Some of the very best. I mean, they manage more people than more people. I think only the U.S. Army manages more people. And so the point is that they do that really well. And so when I think about engineers that have very, very strong coding skills, very strong fundamentals going into that kind of role. And first of all, even for individual contributors, the more senior you become, the more you need to sort of develop these people skills. And that's communication, the way you write, the way you come off, you know, empathy, understanding the other person's point of view, all these other things that you sort of don't think about when you're staring at a monitor, you need to build up. And so I'd say once you go into the management path, it's basically just that stuff. It's one-on-ones, it's only people-related activities. It's a very different job than coding. You're still going to look at architecture diagrams. You're still going to do code reviews. You might even pick off a task once or twice, once in a while. But it's going to be, you know, you're going to sort of degrade in terms of the, the IC skills. And that's okay, right? Like you're trading one side off for the other. But you got to make sure that you really want that. And you're going to become good at the other side. Because there's nothing worse than like a middle manager that's not good at middle management. You know, because you no longer have appealing skill sets that could get you hired as an IC and you're not a good middle manager, (laughs) you you know, so you're stuck in place and you can't even move. You can't even find a new job, let's say. And so I say develop the people skills like crazy. You basically learn to write. I mean, you know, that's such an important thing. Everything's async now. Like I tweeted this a few times, but the value of the written word has gone up exponentially. You know, like you write so much more Jira tickets, Slack messages, emails, a million things, right? You know, you write more than you write code right now. Even junior engineers write more words than code because that's how you're communicating first. And so get a little better at that in the way you come off because at these organizations, people are actually really good at that. But I also think they cut engineers so much slack at these organizations because they have a, you know, at Walmart, for example, they had a huge appreciation for how good we were at the distributed systems, how good we were at the cloud stuff. We could do things. I mean, some of the stuff was still in mainframes. We could do things for them that they'd never dreamed of. And so that's really, you know, you have something you can trade, basically, while you build up that skill set. You have these strong coding skills, trade them off, and let them teach you how to communicate better. And you got to do the work yourself, too. You got to learn in parallel. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, Daria, but I think that basically sums it up. Absolutely. It's a great, 
Great set of recommendations there, Louis. And I, I'd love to unpack this a little bit with a couple of questions. But first, I would love to I would love to know more about how was your go back way back. How was your transition into your first management role? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I mean, I sort of tech led, I don't want to say I managed, but I tech led at a company called SunGuard, which made software for big man. I wasn't responsible for people's careers, but I certainly had a pretty big input in terms of, you know, the next level manager. And I I got a pretty good taste for how well are people performing? Are they delivering on their tasks? All these other things. But I was still doing IC work, you know, in that role. And so that was kind of like my first taste, if you will. And then a jet is where it really got serious because I didn't have a lot of time. You know, they hired me as a senior engineer, individual contributor. I was building systems for the marketing team. So we were building email systems, personalization systems. We had so many things to build a jet. You know, they had raised a ton of venture capital and they needed to grow. They promised VCs they'd grow fast. And so we needed to deliver it. Marketing was like at the heart of that. So they, they obviously couldn't do it with just off the shelf stuff. They needed a lot of homegrown growth tools. And so I started working on that stuff. I saw it was like way too much. And I went back to, you know, the CTO, who, you know, who's a mentor of Mike Hanneran. I said, look, Mike, I need some people. Like, I can't do this. I'm working like nine days <laughs> and I can't do this on my own. And so, and then very quickly he said, you know, you could hire one or two people. We got a really great EVP of engineering, this guy, John Turk, who's also a great mentor of mine still. And they approved to trial me, let me hire sort of my first team. At first I had about three people and everything was going well. I mean, I was coding alongside these people, but I was also responsible for their careers. And I'd say I, I was like in that 80-60 split, if you will. 80% of my time was coding, 60% was management. And these were all, you know, pretty great engineers, I'd say. You know, my early hire got very lucky. They were more on the senior side. And I think, you know, management sort of knew that I was a beginner when it came to that kind of stuff and let me hire good people. And then within six months, we hired more juniors and the team, you know, grew from, I'd say in the first year, we had maybe 10. And then the following year, we had over 30. And so, you know, we grew from one team to three teams and then Walmart acquired us, you know, went over 50. And so, so if we go back to the very beginning, I was doing both jobs for a little bit and it's kind of the trade-off I made. And, and I, for personally, I loved the coding and I was reluctant to really become a manager because I still love coding even today, you know, but I sort of needed it because if I didn't do it, I mean, I saw these things weren't going to get built. And last thing I wanted is to get blamed that, Louis, you can't produce enough that for 10 people. And, you know, obviously I can't, right? So I need to find a way to scale more than just myself. And that's what we did. And it worked out really, really well for me. Those people stuck with me even after the Walmart acquisition. You know, they became managers themselves in a very similar style, in a reluctant style. They were handed a very big project, a very big system to build. And they quickly realized... Now I can't get this done on my own. And what do I do, Louis? Well, let's get some headcount. You know, let's figure it out. Let's get you trained up. Are you up for it? Do you want to become a manager? And, you know, I'll, I'll hold your hand. And that's sort of how it happened, if that makes sense. Yeah, amazing. And so you just hinted at it there. My, my next question would have been, how did they help you? But also, how did you just learn and grow? How did you stay on top? How did you stay ahead? Both on the people side, but also just on your, it sounded like you still had sort of IC obligations as well, but... And what have you learned about that whole experience? What would you recommend to others in terms of learning, growing fast, and you know, staying ahead of the needs of the team? So being thrust into management, I'd say it was a lot of fun at first. And then once we sort of had some, like our first issues, <laughs> it stopped being so much fun. And you know, with performance and things like that, right? And so the point is that it was a lot of fun at first because I had these really great people. Then we hired some juniors. We had to obviously mentor them. We had to grow them. We had to put in a lot more work. And so if I think about how that skill set came about. I mean, I spent a lot of time on my rides to work and on the rides back watching YouTube videos and reading books about these kinds of things from other great leaders and what they've done and 
you know, just trying to take notes and gleam insights. And at the same time, you know, I had amazing people around me at Jet that had, because I was very fortunate, Jet raised a lot of capital, it attracted these just incredible people from, I mean, you know, REVP of engineering ran all of storage at Google. That was my boss the whole time, you know, and this guy, I had access to him like all the time. Like if I had an issue, I would just go and talk to him and figure out how he would handle it. And so he became like a friend. I mean, not even, you know, not even like a boss. I mean, you know, he knew I was working hard. So it wasn't like the conversations were just incredible, basically, and helped me navigate tons and tons of different people related issues. And at the same time, I was actually able to gleam a lot from my business partners at the time. So there was this lady, um, Samaya, Samaya Balbelt, who's who ran marketing and she was our partner. We were building for her teams. And she later became the chief marketing officer of Walmart after the acquisition for a little bit. And she was just an incredible human being. She was very, you know, just amazing at managing people, amazing at communication, like things that, you know, my leadership on the engineering side was just okay at, she was great at. And so just being around her and I just flat out said to her, look, my teams and I treat my teams and I like, like you run them. We're going to be partners in this. Like whatever I build is going to be for you guys. And so bring me to your meetings. Like I want to know about your business. Include my engineers. Like if you need a feature built and you hand it out to a growth tool, like uh, referrals, let's say, or promotions, whatever you need, bring my people into the room with your business people. Let them understand the numbers. Let them understand all of that. And, you know, we all became better communication from, from working, like just partnering up with the business. So I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, Anthony, because it's not like a single thing. I just did this and everything worked out. I just grabbed wherever I could all the information I needed to be good at the thing. And how do you stay on top of things like today? Because I can imagine as a creator, you're superbly busy, probably juggling like the three Zas and then the blog and then the podcast and all of that. So I think it was super interesting to hear how kind of like how to learn from others now that you are on your own as a founder of like these multiple ventures or multiple projects as well, how do you make sure that you still find time to learn and how do you kind of like stay on top of things or yeah, just like keep that learning kind of as part of your habit? Yeah. So I've extracted a lot of rules of thumb from my experience, and, uh, you know, my experiences in my career and things like that, that I just sort of lean on, you know, I realized that a lot of what I learned was from other amazing people. So the first thing I did was I said, I got to learn from amazing people. Like, who's good at this game? Who's good at this entrepreneurial creator game? And, and I took David Perel's Rite of Passage course on writing. And I, like I said, I mean, I became that much better at long-form writing. I mean, little things that I hadn't even thought about, you know, making my writing more personal, something that engineers never do. It's just very observational and dry. But if it's just observational and dry, and you don't tell people why the thing's important to you, they're very, you know, humans are emotionally driven, so they're not going to take action and help you. And so, you know, little things like that, right? Just going and learning from these incredible people, even if I had to pay, right? Because obviously it's tough to find great mentors. They're all busy too, but all it's sort of a wild time right now where, where you could go and you could learn from some of the best people in the world because they're either as a side hustle or, you know, as a full-time thing, they're teaching. And, you know, this wasn't a thing before where great people, I mean, it's still sort of not a thing with a lot of engineering leaders because they make such good money. They never bother to teach. They rather just, I mean, I saw it at Walmart, like there was some great people, but I, you know, as I looked around, they were never going to stop and put their stuff publicly. First of all, because they were embarrassed of looking foolish at first because you know, everyone that kind of gets started in the creative game is not that good at first. And so they had that fear. And then second of all, they were making great money. Why the hell risk it? And so when I got in, I said, I need to do what I did. I need to surround myself with people that know this stuff. I learned from David Perel. Then I learned from Daniel Vassalo. I mean, Daniel Vassalo's small bets, 
you know, this is where I got the idea that why the hell am I just doing one SAS? You know, I mean, it's great. Like, let's keep doing that SAS, but why not have like one or two other small things? And that one SAS is with a couple other people. So, you know, it's a lot further along, but we have a couple of other small things. And at the same time, why not do a course? Why not stop and teach? Why not build a distribution channel? You know, why not help other people behind me? And then you never know, like this world is fully glued together. They're going to be able to help me, right? Like, so if I can help someone climb the career ladder, tomorrow I've got a tool that I need amplified. That person will never forget me. And so that's why, you know, it's, it's good to do it, you know, to put yourself out there, take the risk. And so I surrounded myself with good people. And I'd say just learning as much as I can in the same way and figuring, you know, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Daria, but basically I think it's similar to how I learned a jet. It's very chaotic. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that totally makes sense. I think maybe one follow-up on this, because I think a lot of people actually get value out of like finding people online to follow and stuff, right? Like it's, sure. I, I do the same. I, I mean, that's how I've actually found you. I think I talked to Alex, we like digged into your Twitter profile, found it super interesting what you're doing. So I definitely agree. I think if you have a word of advice for our audience on like, kind of how to find the relevant people like how did you go about that so, so i think many people are still also not so like it's not so easy to get started once you actually have people you follow you kind of like discover people through people and through content but how did you actually get started in the very beginning yeah this is a good question and i haven't put much thought on this one but i think you start by following people that are i just sort of chase my interest if you will following people that were obviously pretty good at the thing that I was sort of interested in learning about at the time. I mean, you know, David Pearl is one example. I still hadn't quit my job when I took Rite of Passage. And I sort of followed him because he was tweeting great things about writing and just great observations about the world. And, and then he was interacting with other people. Similarly with Daniel Vassalo, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Here's this guy, immigrant to quit his job at Amazon to sort of go down this path and grow an audience. I said, you know, let me follow him, see what he has to say. Oh, he's teaching a course. Okay, let's sort of give that a shot. And so I think you get out there, you chase your curiosity, you follow the people that you're sort of interested in, and you make decisions because a lot of these people, through their tweets, they're obviously in this game promoting various things and trying to make a living themselves. And so, yeah, so I'm not sure if that, if that exactly answers your question, Daria. I think it does. I think it does. It sounds like you looked for the topics you are most interested in, in a way, and then you just started researching from there. And that's how you kind of discovered. And then you, you know, just follow the, the rabbit. Ch I guess. Ch ch yeah, chase <laughs> your curiosity, you know, like the most immediate thing you need, right? Like I sort of wanted to become better at my writing, you know, during the pandemic, you know, I saw that writing was becoming really important at work. And I was sending out all these emails, all these writing, all these documents, all these things, and we were all remote. And so I said, you know, who's talking about writing that I could just learn from. And, you know, David Perel, obviously I was following him on Twitter and, and that's sort of how I went down the rabbit hole. So your interest will lead you, I think, to the things you need. And similarly with Daniel Vasala, right? Like after I took his course, after I quit my job and I, I decided, look, this guy's found a pretty good way to make money. It's not a lot of money, but he's found a good way to vet ideas, not, not like a really good way to vet ideas at the very, very early stage. And, and then, you know, you could sort of choose to double down or not on different things but at least you can make a few dollars. He's like the best at making the few dollars on the internet if you're an engineer or whatever. And so I said, you know what? Let me take his course. And this was after I quit because I was like, I'm building this SaaS. Is this the only thing that I should be doing right now? If this doesn't work out, I'll be out of money and sort of begging for a job in like a year or two. So let me find a way to extend my runway. And it was my immediate need. It was my curiosity. 
And here we are, you know, and, and look, I haven't made a lot of money from this internet game. I maybe made like a hundred grand this year or something since January, which is nothing compared to my big tech job. That's but I made super all that awesome though for like but, the but I made it all on my own. year, you know? Exactly. Exactly. That was all on my own, you know? And so that, I feel great. I mean, not all of my, I love Yeah, yeah, yeah you people. definitely should. <laughs> super cool. I mean, speaking of chasing your curiosity, what was the latest book, blog, YouTube, TikTok, <laughs> podcast that you discovered lately that kind of stuck with you that you found? really interesting or really impressed you? Yeah, this is sort of super accidental, but I just finished reading Liar's Poker, which is um, about the collapse of sort of Wall Street in the 80s. And there's a lot of parallels between the traders making a ton of money, two, 300 grand a year in the 80s and engineers making a million bucks a year. You know, there's a lot of parallels <laughs> to what's going on right now. And so it's just sort of like, I, I, by Michael Lewis, he's one of the best in terms of writing about finance. And, and I stumbled on it and I, I'm hearing about layoffs on there. And all these things that you're kind of seeing right now. And it's just fascinating. And, you know, I think similar things are going to happen to engineering. So I'm, I really loved and enjoyed that book. He writes in a, in a sort of amazing, um, you know, a lot of personal stories, a lot of fun stories. And I think the other thing that I've been reading a lot is I recently started reading Charlie Munger a lot because I think, you know, if you think about who's the best at navigating downturns, who's the best at, and I sort of have this belief that like generally right now, Obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the world. So generally, I think we may be headed for a recession. And, you know, that's got nothing to do with tech. I mean, it's got to do with, obviously, there's a war going on, which two countries are completely sort of out of the global GDP because one is ruined and the other one you can't, you can't really trade with. So at least two are not producing for, you know, they're not engaged in trading. And then, you know, there's a lot of other things. There's a lot of other tensions and a lot of other things going on at once. So I personally think we might be headed for a downturn. So let me, my instincts are saying, you know, learn about how that works. And so I started reading you know, a little bit about from Charlie Munger. And I mean, him and Buffett have timeless advice about how to navigate entrepreneurship, how to invest. They did a lot of small bets, right? Like, you know, they bought up, all, they got involved in all sorts of companies and, and it wasn't just stocks, you know? And so it's, it's fascinating, but I'd say, what, you know, what it's a very What do you recommend in particular from him, actually? Like, do you? The Almanac of Charlie Munger. I mean, it's like, nice. you got to read that thing slowly. It's really long, but you got to read it slowly because it's like a college degree, that thing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> for someone in engineering, you know, it's a whole other world. It's true. It's true. It's like very, um, I actually haven't read it yet. I've wanted to. It's on my Goodreads list for like years at this point. So thank you for bringing it up. We'll definitely link it for all of you that want to check it out. And I think it's time for our like, Really, really, really last. I can't believe it's at the end already. Um, question that Anthony always has for our guests. So over to you, Anthony. Yeah, as you know, Louis, there's a lot of first-time managers. There's a lot of people that are aspiring leaders or just sort of really wanting to make the most out of their career and succeed, right? They're looking for success. And so they're listening to this. So the way we like to end is with this very powerful question, but at the same time, a very simple question. If you could go back to when you started your career or that first sort of leap into, you know, those first couple of challenges, that first leap into that first team lead role at the very, very beginning, what advice would you go back and give yourself? If you could give yourself anything, what would it be? I think the biggest advice is trust your gut like a typical engineer, I wanted data for everything. You know, I wanted to spreadsheet things out. I wanted all of these various, you know, before I made decisions, like, should I listen to this person? Should I, but your gut, I mean, you know, your intuition has a lot of, it encompasses a lot of data, right? It's like a trained AI model. And it's telling you things that you need to be paying attention to. If I would have trusted my gut, 
about many things, about which project to jump on. You know, a few projects in your career can sort of make or break your career. Like if you have one project succeed, that's the reason why you climb, because it's like you were associated with that thing that was a massive success. You know, I mean, there's all these jokes about Elon and all these other things, sort of, but looking at lines of code, but no one pays you for lines of code, okay? That's all just a gimmick, right? They pay you for the business value and they promote you and they reward you for the business value that you're able to add. And your gut is really good at judging which PMs, which business people are sort of full of crap and which ones know their stuff. And trust, you know, as an engineer, you need to align yourself with people that know what they're doing, both as mentors, but also to work as colleagues and to build for them, right? And so I'd say, trust your gut, you know, don't, don't let anyone sort of treat you like a code monkey. You have things to say, you have input to add and speak up because your career is on the line. Don't just say, don't just take the tasks and turn them out. That's really, really, um, you know, I, I made that mistake early on and it sort of changed after Jet. But, but I really think if I could go back, that's the one thing I would have trusted my gut way, way more, both on people and projects and, and just everything in general. Because, because now looking backwards, obviously, now that I've sort of quit, quit that world, it's easy to see that it was actually like a couple of things that sort of made my career a few successes and, and um, you know, but, and I stumbled upon them, but I probably could have helped that along if, if I had trusted my intuition a little more about people. Cause there's a few times where things failed, where my gut was saying, this is, this is not, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> and yeah. you know, anyway, so, so um, yeah, I hope that answers it. Anthony. No, that's, that's, that's an amazing note to end on. And I'll just um, add one more thing here, which is really fascinating to me. I was just doing a podcast with another guest yesterday, Richard Newman from Body Talk. And his answer to that question was exactly the same, Louis. He said, wow. trust your gut. There's so much data there. And he basically trains people. He trains professionals to, in order to communicate well, he basically takes them back to childhood because they were great communicators when they were kids, but you lose it over time through all this insecurity and all this politics and stuff sure. like that. So just doubling down on it, amazing. I think you would also love his work and I'm sure he would love yours. So happy to make gonna, also that gonna, connection. <laughs> I'm going to listen to that podcast now, man, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you definitely have to. You definitely have to. Well, I mean, that that's that's yeah, a stellar note to end on. I'm I'm uh, definitely going to walk away with um, that, but plenty more from this podcast. So, uh, thank you, Louis, for everything you've shared here today. And um, yeah, we'll link all the all the stuff in the notes and, and make sure everybody gets uh, all the follow ups as well. Amazing. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing the amazing work of helping others along in in their career. I think it's really really. Um, worth a, a special kudos. I think uh, you can dedicate your entrepreneurial career to so many different things, right? But like enable others to grow and, and progress um, faster, better in a more thriving way, I think is very uh, inspiring. And so I wanted to, to personally thank you for doing that work. I know it's not always easy, but uh, definitely looks like a great first successful year um, as a founder and really, really happy to to have you in our ranks and on our team, so to say. And and thank you for all the learnings you shared today. Absolutely. Thank you, Daria. Thank you, Anthony, for having me on. I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests would join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. 
Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.